Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome Brad Jakeman. Brad has an incredible career that started in Australia. He's worked for Citibank, Macy's, Activision Blizzard, and formerly the global president of PepsiCo. Uh, he's going to give some amazing career advice also talking about mentorship, how to effectively bring about change within your organization, and why he's such a big champion of diversity, possibly for reasons that are different than you think. Let's talk to Brett. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. I am very excited for this episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. My guest today, Brad Jakeman, is somebody who I have followed for a very long time on LinkedIn. Brad, I've learned a lot from you from afar, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation together and share your insights and your experience with our audience. Welcome. Thanks, John. It's awesome to be here. I appreciate it. Well, when I used when I originally followed you, this was before I got into esports, before I joined GameStop, and I said, "Man, this guy is the president of the global beverage group at PepsiCo, and I just love to follow and be connected to successful people who inspire me." And then as I looked further into your past, I said, "Hey, this guy was the CMO EVP at Activision Blizzard, and that's an even closer tie uh, with our experiences today. So I'd love to just start with, first of all, what are you doing today, Brad? And then take us through where you started this amazing journey of yours on this career path. Sure. Well, um, it is, uh, I've certainly been incredibly lucky to work in iconic organizations with, um, with amazing leaders. And uh, so what am I doing now? What I'm doing now is I decided that I would uh, segue out of corporate America. I'd spent my entire career working in big public companies. And uh, I fell in love when I was at PepsiCo with food technology. And so I've decided that I would start a venture fund, which I've done with um, an awesome uh, business partner who also has a a long history in investing. And uh, we invest in the digitization of the food system and all of the disruptive technologies that that are going to reinvent the way we as a community eat in the next 50 years. So I'm very, very excited to be doing that. I'm also uh, lucky enough to be a senior advisor at the Boston Consulting Group, where I get to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of things that are keeping Fortune 50 CEOs awake at night yep. and also sit on a, on a number of boards. So it's a very different life than my life at PepsiCo. Amazing. So where did, well, first I have to stop you. What is the digitization of the food system? I have no idea what that means. <laughs> John, if you think about it, the food system today largely operates in the same way as it did 50 years ago, with only minor kind of innovations around the side and around the fringes. And we believe that the huge global food system is the last major sector to be disrupted through digital technology. So if you think about, we invest in some companies that use AI to discover microorganisms that can express proteins that are similar to meat proteins to help in the 
uh, creation of plant-based meats. We invest in companies that use AI to find phytonutrients in plants that can be that can be connected to metabolic health outcomes. We invest in in companies that are providing um, ways to assess the impact on the climate of the foods that we eat. And so it's it's really where um, digital disruption is really intersecting with the legacy food system. That's really interesting. I actually grew up in uh, Central California in the Central Valley where basically all the fruit in the world comes from. So I'm very experienced seeing the traditional ways uh, that agriculture is grown and processed. And so that's going to be really interesting to see that disruption as you and your team uh, continue down that path. Well, it's a it's an inevitability because if you think about just population growth in the world over the next thirty years, sure, uh, we're adding a billion more people uh, by twenty fifty, and we are running out of arable land right. to farm, and certainly animal husbandry, which takes a lot of land, a lot of water, contributes a lot of greenhouse gas emissions is something that really is not sustainable just if you kind of track population growth. So there is a burning platform, if you like, that requires systemic um, massive changes to the way that we make, ship and sell our food. The DLC Drop podcast is sponsored by iShaker. I've been a huge fan of this brand for the past few years, ever since I met founder Chris Gronkowski. Uh, What I love about this product is the brand story, the functionality, and the customization. iShaker is a Shark Tank company invested in by Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez, owned by NFL players Rob Gronkowski and Chris Gronkowski. I love using my iShaker anytime I'm driving to the podcast studio, I'm going skateboarding, or I'm at the gym. No matter what I'm doing, it just does a great job of keeping my drinks hot or cold. The customization for iShaker is something that's super unique. You can get any name, just about any logo engraved onto your iShaker and delivered to you within just three to five business days. Get your own DLC Drop branded iShaker at iShaker.com forward slash DLC Drop. Save 20% on all iShaker products with the discount code DLC Drop. It's so incredibly interesting where you're at today. Tell us how this started for you when you first started getting into the business world after college. Yeah, well, it's, um, I always give people advice, particularly I, I mentor a, a, a lot of people. I have been the beneficiary, beneficiary of amazing mentors. And I now mentor a number of people myself. And one of the pieces of advice that I give them, which is kind of counterintuitive or, or, or against at least the received wisdom, is don't have a career plan because serendipity is an incredible thing. And my entire career actually has been defined by serendipity. It is, I have never really been able to predict when I have left a company to join another company or what that company is. I've never worked in the same industry twice in my career. And I think that's because I embrace serendipity or I learned to embrace serendipity. And, mm. and my story began 
about 30 years ago now when, uh, as I joke to people, I left Australia for six months 30 years ago. <laughs> Uh, I was working, my passion was always marketing. I uh, was working in, a, in an advertising agency in Sydney, Australia, and I looked around and realized that everybody that was more senior than me had worked outside of Australia and had an overseas assignment. Because Australia is, uh, it, it will always be my home and I love it, but it's a small market. and. Mm -hmm people, at least in those days, were going to Europe or the United States or places in Asia to work in kind of bigger, scaled markets, more complex media environments and so on. And so I decided that I needed to do that and uh, applied for a transfer to London because New York was just way too scary and way too different in my assessment than Sydney. And I thought, you know what? Uh, if I leave uh, for just six months, I will tick the box of having an international assignment and then I'll, nobody will particularly care it was for only six months. And then I'll come back and continue my life and career in Australia. And That sounds pretty planned out at that, at that time. Well, it was. These were that was the young Brad Jackman who um, accepted the received wisdom that one always needed to have a career plan. And if you didn't, you were just going to kind of drift um, drift around from kind of one hapless, hopeless role to the next. Um, yeah. That's not how it turned out, as I'm very fortunate to be able to say. So I moved to London. I loved living in London. I loved the expat experience. I loved the work that I was doing and ultimately uh, decided uh, I was offered a, a role in New York. At that stage, I was in my very early 30s, so New York felt a lot less scary than it did when I was in my mid-20s. And I uh, moved to New York and worked at Ogilvy, and then one day out of the blue got a phone call from a headhunter uh, asking me to go interview at City. And my response was, I work for an advertising agency. Why on earth would I ever want to go work for a bank? Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, he hounded me so much that I thought, I'm, I'm not going to get this guy off my case unless I can interview at City. So I did. And in my car ride over, I received a call from the same headhunter who said, look, just to manage your expectations, um, you're probably not going to get this job. You probably are actually too young and don't have enough experience. And I'm thinking, well, you've literally hounded me for three months. And that's right before, that's on your way to the interview? In the car, <laughs> on my way wow. to my first interview. And it was at that moment that I thought, I don't care whether I want this job or not. I am determined to get an offer in my hand. I met an amazing group of people at um, at City who are still friends today, Brian Ruder, Anne McDonald, a number of people who I've still maintained a friendship with, fell in love with their mission. Um, and that's where I realized that um, in your career, you don't necessarily join companies, you join teams. And I've always ended up in companies that I never really thought I would end up in, but I've ended up there because I've been inspired by the people who have led them or the people that would be my boss there. And that's certainly what happened at City. I spent seven years there. Then I moved to Macy's because my boss at City uh, moved over to Macy's and asked me to come with her. Mm. 
that was that 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 experience lasted for the sum total of 11 months i walked in the building and i'm not exaggerating when i say that at hour three in the building i realized i'd made a terrible mistake wow even though i'd done a, a great deal of diligence even though the brand was great even though um at least the stated aspiration was great i just realized that I was in a company that wanted to change without changing anything. And uh, I decided that this would probably not be a great idea, but I persevered. But after 11 months, it was obvious to to both of us that this wasn't going to work out. Uh, So I left. Um, That's when I joined Activision Blizzard. I had never played a video game in my life. I had no affinity for video gaming, but I was inspired by uh, the vision to um, migrate video gaming into a mass market form of entertainment out of the 14-year-old boy's bedroom, so to speak. What year was that when you joined Activision Blizzard? Uh, that was uh, 10 years ago okay. this year. so um, 2012, and spent uh, a fabulous two years at, uh, at, in Southern California at Activision, um, learning about this fascinating industry, um, which I guess we now call the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. Metaverse. And then one day, walking across the parking lot to get coffee, my cell phone rang, and I answered it. Uh, I didn't recognize the number. I answered it, and the voice was on the other end of the line saying, please hold for Indra Nui. And I'm like, what? Hmm. And then a voice came on the phone, and uh, it was Indra Nui. And she said, hello, Brad, you don't know me, um, but I'm Indra Nui. And I said, well, Indra, said another way, we have not yet met, but of course I know of you. Yes. And she said, look, I'm hearing interesting things about you. I would love you to come have a coffee with me when next you're in New York. And uh, and I, I assumed, because Activision Blizzard and PepsiCo had a partnership agreement, that she just wanted to have a conversation around the business. So I called her assistant, thinking that the next time to get on Indra Nui's calendar was going to be six months hence. And her assistant said, when are you next in New York? And I said, actually, I'm in New York tomorrow. And she said, how's 11 o'clock? Wow. And less than 24 hours later, I was sitting with Indra Nui, hearing about her incredibly ambitious and inspiring transformation plans for PepsiCo to uh, migrate the portfolio away from just sugar-sweetened beverages and salty snacks to healthier options because even back then she saw uh, the massive changes taking place in in the consumer demand profile, regulatory mm-hmm. environment, the competitive environment, and so on. And I really decided I, I loved that ambition. I wanted to work for somebody who was inspiring and could see around corners yeah. like in Rui and uh, left uh, what what I thought was going to be the best job of my life left to join PepsiCo. So that's the story. And I, I stayed at PepsiCo for almost 10 years. Wow. That, that's an incredible journey. And I can relate to you um, on some, lo- some level. I've had a shorter career and um, have not uh, led these massive massive companies quite yet but i 
the the best advice that I got before I went back to college, I, I chased my pro skateboarding dreams. I got a, a job at a tax firm, which just had the most amazing culture and showed me an office job could be a positive experience. Mm-hmm. And then after two years there, I realized, that, okay, I want to go get my marketing degree. Um, a gentleman named Tim Tobin at Beers and Cutler said to me, he said, John, don't worry about what you're going to do after school. It's going to be three or four years your interests are going to change. Your relationships are going to change. You're going to become aware of things that you don't even know of today. And that's an attitude that I still very much have today. But that gave me so much freedom and relaxation as I thought, you know, people said, what are you going to do after school? And I said, I don't know. Something's going to pop up. Well, how do you decide, being so serendipitous in your, uh, your perspective here, how do you decide which opportunities to take rather than just jumping at every shiny ball that may pop up? Look, um, John, as I said earlier, for me, the most important thing is working for a visionary leader. Yeah. Very early in my career, uh, I kind of got typecast, which looking back, I'm really happy about, but it, it caused me to pursue a number of really difficult jobs, the PepsiCo job included, I got typecast as somebody you bring in when you had an ambition to change and where there was a change mandate. Mm. So I've never had a job where the brief has just been the last person left, she was doing an awesome job, come in and continue to do that awesome job and maintain the company on this. Uh, steep growth trajectory. Yeah, It's always been come in and bring about meaningful change. In the case of City, it was come in and transform this bank into a brand. The consumer business was the engine of, of revenue, but people's relationship with their bank was very shallow emotionally. Mm, yeah. Was their bank largely by proximity to a branch to their house. And the leaders of City at the time had an ambition to change that, to build City into a consumer marketing powerhouse. At Macy's, the mission was to move the company off what has la- had largely been a diet of sales promotions and one-day sales and create a reason for people to come into the store uh, that was greater than things happened to be on sale and to reinvent the in-store experience. At Activision, as I said, the mission was to mainstream video gaming as a form of mass market entertainment, to compete with Hollywood and the feature film industry and television and streaming. And at PepsiCo, the mission was to transform the portfolio into something that better fit with the way society was moving and away from sugar-sweetened beverages, away from um, exclusively packaged, uh, plastic packaged beverages, uh, sustainable options. And they were just big, exciting challenges that I signed up for. So I, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever joined a company because of the company itself, it's always been because of an inspiring change mandate. Interesting. That sounds like a lot of work, and it sounds like maybe a little bit of a curse and a blessing that you've been typecast as, hey, you got to change stuff, but then it's like, 
I got to change stuff. That that sounds like a heavier workload than just let's stay on the trajectory. Well, it, it is. And it, it kind of sometimes it really sucks because <laughs> I look back and say, well, I've, every job I've had has been really, really hard. Mm. Every job I've had, I have been an outsider with no knowledge of that industry having to drive change and garner internal support um, and respect even though i hadn't been in the company for 20 years even though i didn't have 20 years of experience in even the industry yeah and that's really hard and i've learned a lot about um people as part of that that experience i've learned a lot about uh, cultures I've learned a lot about how to bring about change. I've learned about how not to do it at Macy's. Um, and I've learned from that. I described Macy's, even though it was 11 years, as one of, uh, sorry, 11 months, as uh, probably one of my steepest learning experiences ever. Because always in your career, I think you've got to have one monumental at least one kind of monumental uh, misstep because you learn so much more from that sure what would you say at a high level um is the right way to bring about change and what is the wrong way to bring about change based on your experience so i will say that most people usually the easiest part is the what defining the what uh, usually you come into these companies and, and generally the what has already been identified uh, for you. And in the case of Pepsi, the what was the portfolio and changing the, the nutritional profile of the portfolio. But um, the hard work is not always the what. Um, slightly harder, but not particularly hard is the how, because as part of this process, um, very senior and inspiring leaders like Indra Nui, who I've mentioned, are really good at identifying talent and capabilities that know how to do the things they want done in their company. So typically, you hire people with the right skill sets and experiences who, who know the how. The hardest thing in the entire process is the when. And what I mean by that, uh, and this is really what I learned at Macy's, when you come into an organization in a senior role with a change mandate, you have a lot of pressure on you from the leadership team who brought you in, boards, CEOs, your peers, and you have a lot of pressure sometimes externally from the market if the company is underperforming as a result of not changing and so you you come in with a lot of pressure and your temptation as was my impulse at macy's is to make as much change as fast as possible Uh, yeah i could see that so so you want to one you you have something to prove because you're not from that industry you're new on the leadership team you have a very clear target that has been painted for you by the people who brought you into the organization. Yeah. You know you can change it uh, because you've been through a very rigorous interview process. 
and your temptation is just kind of head down and run toward the goal and change as much as possible, as fast as possible. That is absolutely the wrong way to go because what happens in big companies, big global companies in particular, is that no one person can change those companies. Mm. You need to find coalitions of people who will help you move the organization in the direction that you want. You have to spend time building affiliations. You have to spend time explaining why you why the change 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 mandate existed. It's not enough that the CEO just kind of publishes a vision or writes a thesis. You've got to bring it to life for people. You've got yeah. to help internalize it and see why it's the right thing for the company and see why it's the right thing for them. And one of the things that I learned at Macy's is in trying to change things too fast without doing all of that, you essentially create cognitive dissonance in the organization because you're asking people to do something differently, do something different to what they have been doing for decades in some instances without really spending the time explaining the why. And when people don't understand why we should change or they don't know how to change, their impulse is that therefore that change is wrong. And when people believe the change is wrong, essentially you have these internal armies forming both within your team and extended teams to make you unsuccessful. And and that's what happened to me at Macy's. And it was my fault. It wasn't Macy's mm. fault. It wasn't the people at Macy's fault. It was entirely my fault. I should have spent more time explaining the change mandate. I should have spent more time bringing people along with me. I should have spent more time understanding why people were being resistant rather than kind of bulldozing through them. And by the time I got to Mace, uh, um, PepsiCo, I really decided that I would um, take that learning. And I realized at PepsiCo that change happens in the head, the heart, and the hands. And you have to engage all three. And they are sequential. You have to start with the head. You have to explain to people why intellectually things need to change. So you need to go through the facts and figures and numbers and, and really the, the logic of why you need to change. That needs to resonate in their heart. They need to internalize that. They need to understand that. And then only, and then they need to personalize that. And when that happens, then things start happening in the hands. And uh, one of the most effective things I did at PepsiCo very early on is I would go around and have big town hall meetings talking about the uh, Indra's vision for transforming the portfolio to lower calorie, less sugar sweetened beverages. And my way of migrating that thought from the head to the heart was I would ask people in the audience to put up their hand if they had a kid under the age of 17. Mm. And the population of PepsiCo, maybe 60% of hands would go up. And then I would say, okay, if you now keep your hand up, if you were to make your kid a beverage at home, how many of you would decide to make one that involved adding six teaspoons of sugar? That makes it very personal, yeah. 
miraculously a number of hands would go down, if, if not all of them. And it translates it into a real um, meaningful personal personal experience. I mean, the number of meetings that I was in at PepsiCo with senior leadership talking about the need to do this, and then I would look around the conference table with the beverages people, senior leaders were drinking, and it was Aquafina, it was Tropicana, mm. it was maybe Izzy. Very few times was there a blue can Pepsi sitting on the desk. Interesting. So it was like a, a method to translate your own personal observations and experiences into, um, into a strategy uh, for the company. Well, that seems too like a great way to get people to really invest pieces of their selves into the company. I've worked at some companies where I'm just showing up at nine and I'm punching out at five. And I've worked at other companies where I really believe in this mission. And I could see the the example at Pepsi is you're saying I am helping to raise a more healthy generation that have access to, you know, things that they enjoy eating but are better for them. That would get me more excited to work and work harder and push through my initiatives than if I don't really believe in the product or the mission. And, and you know what, John? It's it's somewhat de rigueur now for big companies to talk about their role in society. Mm-hmm. And it was only two years ago that the Business Roundtable declared that they were going to take a multi-stakeholder approach to how they assess their performance, moving away from just a sole, almost a sole and exclusive focus on the shareholder. Well, Indra Nui was talking about that 14 years ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that's what inspired me, Indra, and not only talking about it, but attracting a great deal of criticism for talking about it. Um, sure. People were saying the management of Pepsi is ashamed of the of the product. Mm. Well, that was absolutely not the case. What was happening was that Indra could see that unless companies such as PepsiCo, particularly companies that provided things like food and beverages, if they were not having a net positive effect on the societies in which they operated, then their license to operate would be challenged. And their runway for growth would be shortened. And they would find it harder, to your earlier point, to recruit amazing talent to come come work there. And, um, and, And that's what I signed up to execute for Indra because I was incredibly motivated by the role that big companies should have in society and that the mark of a company's success is not just the reaction of shareholders although that is very very important as is uh, earnings and all of the things that drive to profitable outcomes for companies but those profitable outcomes are very short-lived if you are not also thinking about stakeholders that will influence your destiny 10, 20, 30 years from now. And those stakeholders are regulators, local governments, people in the communities in which you operate. And unless you're really thinking through that, I think you're going to find it very hard to drive growth into the future, have a license to operate in society. And and, and that really, I'm 
I'm grateful that many more leaders have come around to the way Indra was thinking 14 years ago. Um, but that's really what I signed up for for PepsiCo. And whenever I found, whenever I was looking for really great talent, mm-hmm. um, I will tell you, a lot of them kind of rolled their eyes, particularly younger talent, saying, well, I don't know that I want to work for a sugar water company. And it was only when I described that vision that, that Indra called performance with purpose that I was able to get them. And, and so I had real tangible experiences of being able to bring in amazing talent as a consequence of being able to articulate the role that the company was to play and was playing in society. I love that. I think oftentimes what we're able to accomplish is the result of who is on our team and the people that we bring into it. And I know something that you very much champion and are very passionate about is diversity in the Mm -hmm. workforce. Share a little bit about how you became aware of diversity and why it is so important for corporations from your perspective. Well, um, and forgive me for the the, the sigh. (laughs) I have been talking about diversity now for over 10 years um, with a handful of other people in the marketing industry way before it was fashionable to be on stages. And I too attracted um, a lot of criticism uh, for for doing that. And, And many people misunderstand my passion for diversity Um, because they think it has something to do with being a good corporate citizen. It's actually, it it certainly is that, but that's not the driver for me. The driver for me is better economic outcomes. Mm. It's as cold-hearted as that. Over and over and over and over again. I don't know how many more amazing academic institutions need to public publish reports which uh, demonstrate that more diverse teams drive better outcomes whether it's diversity on your board whether it's diversity um, in your leadership team um, whether it's diversity in the uh, organization at large time and time and time again we see that more diverse teams lead to better economic outcomes. And when you think about it, it's pretty logical. If you think about solving a problem with a whole group of people who've had exactly the same life experiences and exactly the same education experiences and exactly the same socioeconomic um, experience, yeah. you are going to not get to as good a solution as if you bring in people who bring a different perspective through their life experience, um, whether it be the color of their skin, their, their, their gender identity, their physical ability. I mean, go through the list. Um, sure. You always end up with better outcomes. And it just struck me where I, when I first started talking about the issue of diversity in marketing is I just thought um, it just struck me, the optics struck me over and over again when I would be sitting in meetings with our agencies at the time. And here we were selling a product uh, that was 80% of the time was bought by women. And there was a whole bunch of men in the room. Right. 
And it just struck me as there was a missed opportunity there. I'm, I'm very pleased to say on the advertising agency side of the ledger, things have improved significantly as, as they have in marketing. The number of female CEOs, CMOs has increased. The number of senior leaders in agencies has uh, dramatically increased. And so we're making progress, but it's been a long time coming. And, and, and then you just, and, and it also struck me as odd that we, classified women as a diverse audience when they represented 50% of the population. I mean, that's yeah, a critical good point. Mm-hmm. Utterly diverse. Um, but we have a long way to go on um, other dimensions of uh, diversity. And it's not just diversity, it's inclusion as well. We talk a lot about right. it's not just representation. It's about how are we engaging that diverse perspective, giving them a seat at the table, putting them in leadership and decision-making roles. What are we doing as an industry to, to, to solve for that? And I think we have a long way to go still, unfortunately. Yeah, and as we look at how groups recruit or look for diverse employees in leadership, um, you and I had a conversation about this on our last call I was expressing that some groups can find it difficult to find people for these roles. And your reaction was, we need to break the mold of how we look for people and how we develop people if we want a different result than what we've had over the last hundred years. What is your perspective on uh, breaking that mold in identifying people and, and developing people? Well, you've got to first by start by really um, embracing the fact that the vast majority of business processes, recruitment included by white straight men in service of other white straight men. Sure. And that, that is how all of the business processes have, have been developed. And it's only when you challenge that and reinvent those processes that the outcomes will be different. And I tell the story over and over again of the time that I was hiring for a very senior role at PepsiCo using an outside recruiter and asked that recruiter to show me a slate of candidates that was diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... Uh, I got the first slate back of candidates that this headhunter wanted me to interview. And out of the 10 names, there was one woman on it. Everybody else was male and and everybody was white. Mm-hmm. So back again, and I said, okay, this is not what we agreed. I'm not even gonna move forward with interviewing anybody until I get a diverse slate. Show me a diverse slate. I get the next uh, list of candidates back and there's two more women on it so three out of ten and again everybody's white and months are going by and (laughs) so i called this headhunter and i'm like okay i thought i'd made myself like really clear this is really important to me and the response i got was was it's really hard to find these people i've tried everything and so i said okay have you really exhausted all the methods that you have available to you, your databases, your extended network, you've really put your heart and soul into this. Right. And the response I got was, I absolutely have. And I said, great, you're fired. 
<laughs> You're right. What else could you do in that situation? Because here we have somebody who was locked in a process yeah. that was never going to yield the, the results that we needed. And it was only when you challenge that process that you get um, better results. And uh, I think that's why diversity and getting to the point uh, of, of having diverse leadership teams, diverse boards, diverse companies has been so hard because of two things. One, we have never really truly, we, very few companies articulate the reason why, why diversity. And a lot of people, it drives me nuts when you ask a leader why they are talking about diversity and interested in diversity and the response you get is, well, it's the right thing to do. Well, what do you mean it's the right thing to do? According well, to who and why? <laughs> like some sort of favor and some sort of kind of social mission. Right. And, and, and it's, it is important for society, but it's the right thing to do because it's better business. And yeah. until you articulate the economic outcomes that come from having more diverse um, teams available and working and making decisions – in your company, you'll never really get there. And the second thing, as I said, is in order to get there, you have to fundamentally re-engineer the way we find people, the way we interview people, the way we assess the performance of people, the way that we promote people, the way that we pay people. Um, the, all of those processes need to be challenged and re-engineered if we are to not only accomplish diversity, but also inclusion. Yeah, I love the point you make about uh, the shareholder value and the, the sales value and the, that cold hard business reason, because it's very helpful to argue a winning argument. And when it comes down to it, yes, there's a lot of people who are going to you know, articulate the fluffy stuff or it feels good or it's the right thing to do. When it comes down to it, the leaders basically only care about dollars and shareholder value and how am I increasing my stock price? How am I increasing my revenue and keeping my job? And so what I think is wonderful is that it is true, exactly what you're saying, that embracing diversity and inclusion is going to result in uh, better sales, better shareholder value, etc. And so I would challenge people listening to this podcast, argue the winning argument that that the people who are making the decisions actually care about rather than going to the cosmetic stuff. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I mean, we operate within a capitalist um, system. Yeah. And when you're running a business, you have an obligation to multiple stakeholders, as I said earlier, not just to shareholders, but um, a number of stakeholders to make businesses successful, make them have a, a net positive effect on the economy, on society, and so on. And you have to be able to translate in that capitalist system in which we operate your business decisions into um, positive economic outcomes. Now, where the challenge is for some of these things is the time horizon. Not everything and very few things actually that are 
going to contribute to the long-term prosperity of your company are going to be measured, able to be measured in a quarterly earnings cycle. Mm, And our system of quarterly earnings and so on can sometimes drive a very short-term focus. But when you are in a company that is decades old um, or even a, a, a new company, with a with a big growth ambition, you need to be thinking about the quarter, you need to be thinking about the year, you need to be thinking about the decade. That's how you need to run those companies because you want to create sustainable growth. You want to create growth that will um, cause the company to prosper for many, many years to come not just in in that particular quarter or that particular year. And some of these decisions, it becomes very hard to be able to focus some of the stakeholders that we are responsible for serving um, when you start talking about things that will eventuate in, in decades, for instance. Yeah, well, I'm learning so much from you here. And as we uh, look to round up this episode, I have one more topic that I really want to get your insight in, and that's mentorship. You you yourself said you're very involved as a mentor. So my my first question for you would be for uh, people in business who are leaders, what are the benefits of being a mentor to younger people? I, I, I feel like a little bit of a fraud as a mentor because... 90% of the time that I have a mentoring session with with some of the folks that I mentor, I leave feeling I've learned more from them than I was able to teach them. Wow. And uh, the experience, particularly of younger people in business, their experiences, their ambitions, um, their frame of reference for decision-making is so much uh, different than it was for me at their age. Mm, I think the generation behind mine, which typically are the, are the people, the cohort that I end up mentoring, are far more of an illustrious group of people than my generation mm. was. My generation were the wolves of Wall Street. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is the generation that is focused on how to grow businesses and protect the environment, how to grow businesses and have a thriving society, how to have a career and have a family. How wow. it's an and um, and and much more multi-dimensional. Now I'm speaking in generalities here, of course. But the tendency is that the people I mentor are um, thinking much more about context in in their career in the context of society yeah. uh, than, than I guess my generation really did. Interesting. And then so for those who are the younger people looking for a mentor, uh, what, how would you advise people to, to find a positive mentor? Reach out and ask. You know, I have reached out and asked people that I thought were going to be so busy, that were so acclaimed, um, so um, important that they would never agree to be a mentor. 
and I've never had anyone say no to me. So mostly when you're asked by someone to be their mentor, it's very flattering. Mm. And assuming they don't want to speak to you for two hours every day and, and it's, it's hard for you to commit to that, yeah. um, there's really no reason to say no. And as I said to all those people listening to the podcast today who are as fortunate as I am to have had the privilege of, of, of having a career that, that, that people look to and, and say, wow, I'd love to learn a bit about how he did that, mm-hmm. um, do some mentoring. It's good for the soul. It's good for your intellect. And it's good to stay current. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with the way that the next generation of leaders, uh, both leaders of our society and leaders of our company, are really thinking. I completely agree. Uh, one last question for you. If you wanted the audience to leave this episode knowing one thing or remembering one thing, what would that be? Wow. Well, on the topic of career... It would be don't join companies, join teams. Don't make a list of companies that you would like to work for in your career, which tends to be the received wisdom. Write down a list of leaders that you aspire to work for and learn from, irrespective of the industries that they're in because that's where you're going to get the greatest career experiences. That's wonderful advice. I really appreciate that. Brad Jakeman, thank you so much for joining me today. What are the ways that people can follow you, stay in touch with you in the ways that you would like them to? Thank you for having me, John. The best way is um, on Twitter at at Brad Jakeman, or um, that's probably the best way to follow me or at LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I learned a ton hosting this episode and listening, learning from your insights. I know the audience did. So thank you again for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. 